I don't think she'd be sorry, I don't at all think she'd be anything but from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues, the many fields of knowledge, all the steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear air of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening and welcome. So I remembered, too late, I remembered that I had uh, planned to read some of uh, his uh, guided meditations that are at the back of the source book and are scattered throughout one of his books, Mind in the Balance, and then uh, Minding Closely. He just has tons of guided meditations. So um, hopefully I'll remember in the future, and during the sitting period I'll read through one of his, uh, each one of his guided meditations while we're continuing to sit. So tonight we continue exploring uh, the elements of shamatha meditation, uh, building up to the, the Vajrayana tradition, which is sort of what the course is uh, ultimately focused on, but uh, exploring the basics in the traditions of the Theravada and the Mahayana as well. And... Um, so there were two readings. I thought I would start with the one from Balancing the Mind called Quiescence in Theravada Buddhism. And then I'll shift back to the other one, uh, Mindfulness in the Mind Sciences and in Buddhism. So he begins this one um, in the Tibet, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Many techniques for developing quiescence are taught, i.e. shamatha, and there are many levels of sustained voluntary, voluntary attention as well as many types of insight. So many techniques and many different ways of classifying the stages of accomplishment in the two basic practices of shamatha and vipassana, and we'll run through a number of those this evening. And I said, Tsongkhapa points out that the distinction between shamatha, and I'm going to replace quiescence with shamatha, um, and insight is not made on the basis of their objects, for either may be focused on conventional or ultimate realities. Just an interesting statement, because oftentimes um, many of us have said, including myself, that it's uh, the difference is the object. But uh, I think what he's getting at is correct, and and what he's getting at is that it's it's the way the object is taken. And if we look at the presentation of meditation in the Samdhina Mochana Sutra, the famous eighth chapter, the questions of Maitreya, 
<clears throat> which is entirely focused on shamatha and vipassana, a dialogue between the Bodhisattva Maitreya and the Buddha about shamatha vipassana from the Mahayana point of view. He asks, what are the objects of shamatha? What are the objects of vipassana? And the Buddha says, in both cases, the object is the same and the object is our mind. And so the differences in, in uh, how we approach that object, is it uh, just a, uh, a sort of union with that object, as in shamatha, or is it an analysis of that object? And I know, again, this way of con- uh, um, understanding Vipassana as discursive and analytical is uh, not the way Trungpa Rinpoche did. Uh, entirely, although he did present many of the traditional discursive schemes of Vipassana without really revealing it, but it is the traditional version. Likewise, uh, in Theravada Buddhism, the classification of mundane and supermundane, i.e., which is the the way that uh, relative and, and ultimate or rel- uh, conventional and ultimate are phrased in the Theravada tradition. They don't really use the terms conventional and ultimate. They they uh, have different terminology, and they pertain to both samadhi and wisdom. And uh, he's using the term samadhi here to indicate uh, shamatha, the culmination of a of uh, uh, a um, settling or abiding meditation and wisdom to uh, indicate the culmination of insight. Whereas in the Mahayana tradition, what we see from uh, other authors is that there's a samadhi of shamatha and there's a samadhi of vipassana. And samadhi just means the, the transcendent accomplishment of a certain type of meditation. In both traditions, one is usually encouraged to cultivate shamatha initially with respect to a conventional reality. So that is the common order of shamatha before vipassana and to to start with a, a sort of mundane object that we're familiar with, i.e. the breath. And Tsongkhapa emphasizes the focusing on a mental representation of the Buddha, which we've seen before, that comes from a Sangha and comes from the Samadhi Raja Sutra, where the Buddha recommends focusing one's shamatha on an image of a Buddha. And uh, here he says a mental representation. One uses an external version of a Buddha, an image of a Buddha or a statue of a Buddha as an external support initially, but one quickly uh, transitions into a uh, a mental apprehension of that image as the focal object of one's meditation. And uh, while with Buddha Gosha, who's the um, by far the most famous, outstanding, uh, unexcelled uh, meditation master and scholar of the Theravadan tradition, who lives in the 5th century, so it's like the culmination of Theravadaism, maybe at the, uh, what do they call it, the height of the trajectory, uh, because after that Theravada, um, uh, he was in India, and he, he moves to Sri Lanka, uh, but Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism in India declined after that. 
And um, he uses the 5th century authority on Theravada Buddhism, gives an elaborate account of techniques by developing shamatha using emblems, <laughs> which is uh, Lama Allen's, as <laughs> they call him, uh, translation of the, the Pali term kasina. And uh, there's most authors just leave it in the Pali, kasina. K-A-S-I-N-I, -I, meditation. And um, uh, using emblems and various elements of experience. And let's see, in the Tibetan tradition, we have a list of 10, which is similar to the Buddha Gosha's system. I think he maybe has 10 or 12. Um, so they both use the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, and then the four colors blue, yellow, red, and white, or what they called, what they consider to be primary colors, and then space and consciousness. Some early Pali sources give this same list, while Buddha Gosha uh, replaces the final two with light and limited space, or delimited space. And uh, in the case of, like, as an example, when focusing on the Earth's casino, one first attends closely to a disc prepared of clay as a physical representation of the entire element of earth. And then he says, or solidity. And so uh, immediately we see that the, the use of these uh, emblems or casinas for developing samadhi is, uh, in the case of the four elements, is um, not on the color, of the element, but is on the um, characteristic of that element, and the characteristic of earth is solidity. So when we say earth, we really mean the principle of solidity. When we say water, we mean the principle of cohesion, and so forth. Um, and uh, our affiliation of that with the, the uh, material that we find in the ground, if you don't live in this New York City, <laughs> where everything is paved, um, is a limited association of uh, earth with uh, the uh, topsoil, let's say, with the notion of earth. And so one would, for each of these, so for the elements and then for the colors, one would have little discs, maybe three inches in diameter, flat, and one would start by staring at that and then one would uh, work on making that, uh, making a mental representation of that image. And the, the cool ones are uh, light and space. And for light, what they would do is they would uh, have like an otherwise, create an otherwise dark background or um, screen, and then cut a hole in it and have it positioned in such a way that sunlight was coming through it since they didn't have light bulbs in those days. So that sunlight was coming through it without you being able to see what was, what else was vis otherwise maybe visible through that hole if you like got up close to it, but the sunlight flooded it. So you had a, uh, an experience just of light. And for space, it was, um, um, having a hole with that, uh, that light didn't flood through but that you couldn't really see anything out of, that the, that uh, there there was no obs 
other object within a visual range of that hole. And so you just have the sensation of there being um, like an opening there. And that's why he calls it limited space. I I believe it's actually the same thing. And and the the substitution of light for consciousness, I believe, is actually meant to be the same thing. Anyway, um, one repeatedly gazes at the device until an acquired sign, so that's the first sign, where a mental image of it appears in the mind as clearly when the eyes are shut as when they are open. Right, so uh, this is not the eidetic image, which would be the reverse, when the, the cones and the eyes get worn out from experiencing an image. Uh, that has the colors that they respond to, and when you close your eyes, the other um, the other cones kick in, <laughs> and um, this mental image is a sign of the earth element, and that becomes the chief meditative object of this preliminary concentration, leading up to the first proximate meditative stabilization. So you know we don't do this practice, obviously. (laughs) And uh, I'm not sure to what extent people are interested in it. Uh, So I'll try not to go into too much depth with it, but uh, it's sort of uh, fascinating. And uh, it's it's sort of interesting to know as uh, uh, in reference to what we actually practice. And the... um, the, the nuance here that he keeps alluding to in terms of preliminary concentration um, and first proximate stabilization versus the first absorption state is that in the, the Buddha, when he taught the absorptions in the Pali, or what is recorded as his teachings that uh, come down to us in the Pali canon and in collections of scriptures from that time period, that are similar to the Pali Canon, which is primarily a collection that exists in Chinese, that was translated into Chinese of early, an early uh, uh, tripitaka or basket of the teachings of the Buddha called the Agamas. You may see reference to. Um, the Buddha presents a scheme of eight absorption states. There's the first four form absorption states called the first jhana, second jhana, you know, not very creative names, first absorption, second absorption, third and fourth. And then there's the um, uh, formless absorptions, the absorption of infinite consciousness and space and um, uh, neither conscious, uh, of nothing whatsoever, and then neither perception nor non-perception. It's the standard list of the eight and then, uh, as Alan is saying in this description, later on in the com- in the commentarial literature of the Pali Theravada tradition, we see this discussion, uh, a very common discussion, of uh, splitting the first absorption into two stages. And the, uh, he's calling the first one proximate 
Um, there's you'll, you may come across other translations of it, but basically that first one is divided into becomes divided into two different stages in the the commentarial literature. So then you have nine absorptions, five form absorptions, and four formless absorptions, which are the same. And when I say form absorptions, they're called the form absorptions because the uh, the um, perfection of them results in the experience of being in the form realms of the three realms of existence, desire, form, and formless. And so when one's in that absorption, you are in that form realm, and if you were to die at that point, you could be reborn in that form realm. Um, and, uh, and so the difference is the strength of this, of this sign. And uh, again, this sign that he's talking about, where he says, first there's an acquired sign, and um, uh, let's see, I can't remember the term he used for the next sign, the counterpart sign. The Buddha didn't didn't discuss these again in the Pali in what's in the Pali Canon. He did not talk about these, but they show up in the commentarial literature. This this very common discussion about and common, I mean, like lots of different authors talking about it as if it's a given thing within the uh, community at that point. That there is this experience as one goes into absorption where a sign appears to the mind. And uh, so that's my attempt at providing a little background and, and you'll see how he, how it, it is described as we go through. So there's that distinction. There's two two levels of the first absorption. And there's uh, different stages of this so-called sign that appears in the mind. And the first sign we just encountered is the acquired sign. It's a mental image that appears in the mind as clearly when the eyes are shut as when they are open. This mental image is a sign of the earth element, and that becomes the chief meditative object. So one just creates a mental uh, replica, in this case like a visual, uh, 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 a mental uh image of the earth element or the colors that were listed there in one's mind. And this is the chief meditative object of the preliminary concentration that leads up to the first proximate meditative stabilization. Uh, once the quiescence, the shamatha of the first uh, proximate stabilization has been achieved, there rises to the mind's eye a counterpart sign. Now, he says a counterpart sign, and the way that he's saying it um, makes it sound like there's many counterpart signs, and here's a counterpart sign. But usually it's people would say the counterpart sign, or the sign called the counterpart. And the term counterpart doesn't seem to have any particular meaning. It's just the next, you see this other sign of the earth element, which is more purified than the previous mental image. So it's more subtle, it's more advanced, and it takes you into the first real absorption state. This counterpart sign is an appearance that arises purely from perception, which is a little bit of an odd thing. Description, if you said that 
normally to someone purely for perception, they would think, well, it comes about from me seeing or hearing or tasting something. And what he really means is it, it's an it's a internal mental representation that has no external basis in perception. So it's a little misleading, that I think, the way he says that. But uh, it has no correlation to external, uh, in this case, visual phenomena. Uh, being without color <laughs> or appearance of solidity, having none of the blemishes of the original earth element that were evident in the earlier mental image. So <clears throat> I give this description or Buddha Gosha, who's the standard, gives this description of how <clears throat> initially any emblem or casino that you make by hand is going to have like imperfections in it. Maybe the surface won't be perfectly smooth or the color won't be uniform. And initially you pick up on that when you create the first sign where you replicate that in your mind. But then when it becomes this so-called the counterpart sign, you you connect with the sort of like uh, the the comp comparison is the Platonic ideal, the Platonic form of Earth, and so forth. Rom. So would this be valid cognition in that it's a direct mental cognition? Valid cognition in that it's a direct mental valid cognition. I believe the answer, my answer to that would be yes. <laughs> um, Amelia. Yeah, wouldn't that be more like some Trantica view where um, the outside object doesn't have anything to do with the, 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 the perception? Yeah, yeah, it's that's why... Made up, it's just made up because you, you can never... Um, perceive the outer object directly. It's always through some image in your mind. Right. right. And so well, in direct sound... perception is much more like dynamic and with them, um, you know, dynamic, I would say. Uh -huh. Well, in, in yeah. the South Tragic, the, the, the way they're defined is that um, direct perception is perception through the, the six senses. So the five uh, normal externally oriented mm -hmm. senses um, by definition perceive their object uh, directly i.e. Mm -hmm. non-conceptually and the mental consciousness has two types of direct cognition one is that uh, there's the first moment of the transference of a, of a, uh, a cognition from any one of the other five senses to the mental sense that first right. moment is direct, but also the mental cognition has other, a few other types of uh, direct mental cognition, such as uh, uh, prescience, knowing the future, and um, uh, perception of imperceptible form by people with uh, um, uh, the type of of powers that come from the attainment of absorption, which he lists later mm. on. And so this, I believe, would be one of those occasions where the mind has a, a direct perception of, uh, of an object without it being conceptual.
And, um, you know, so I think in the initial phase, you're trying to, uh, by focusing on an external object, in this case visual, you're trying to connect with the direct mental, the, the direct visual cognition of but that But then later image. on, later on it's just mental. Later on it's just mental, but... That's what it is. Yeah, but in the uh, initial stage, it, it, it will uh, primarily shift into conceptual because only the first moment of of each uh, stream of consciousness would be direct. As you look at the object, right. it would it would shift into sort of thinking about the object. But then at some point, as Rob, I think, is indicating, you would uh, not shift into that thinking part and just be able to stay with uh, the direct cognition of it. And it, at that point, would be the purely mental image. And it, it, it like, expands and, like sort of fills your whole cognitive field. Uh, let's see. This counterpart sign so is an appearance of being without odor or the appearance of solidity. Sorry, color. <laughs> also odor. <laughs> Or the appearance of solidity having none of the blemishes of the original earth emblem that were evident. In short, the, the earlier, the, the counterpart sign is regarded as a mental representation of the primal quality of that object, in this case of earth. In the Theravon account, the development of quiescence, uh, or in this case absorption, is closely linked to three kinds of signs that are the objects of one attention. One's attention first is the preliminary, the sign for preliminary practice, which in the case of Earth emblem is the actual physical symbol. So he's re, sort of rehashing what he went through in more detail, used for the practice. The second is the acquired sign, which in this case, in the case of the Earth emblem, is the thought impression as a precise copy of the first sign with all its specific limitations, such as its molded form, color and shape, uh, variations in color and shape. And the third is the counterpart sign, which is a subtle emblematic representation of the whole quality of the element it symbolizes, and it becomes like perfect, perfect representation. <clears throat> this threefold division of signs relating to stages in the development of absorption does not appear to be prevalent in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I, I've never seen this anywhere, and I've looked in every Mahayana text and Tibetan text I can find about meditation, and there's zero mention of this. And I'm so happy that someone else has finally mentioned this. I've never seen anybody notice this absence or not notice a comment on it. And so it's really cool that he does, and it's an oddity. And so he's going to spend quite some time on the difference between these these systems of obtaining uh, the sort of perfection of shamatha, and whether they're actual differences or not. And of course, everything has to coincide. So he's going to end up reconciling them all somehow, so that they all live happily ever after. Just to give you the end of the story ahead of time, which you already read, hopefully. In Tibetan Buddhism, Mahamudra and Atiyoga tradition strongly emphasize the cultivation of uh, quiescence, 
while focused on the nature of consciousness. So he's saying that that the use of uh, focusing on the nature of the mind um, has uh, is as in the previously discussed technique of maintaining the attention upon non-conceptuality. So that was discussed in a prior section of the book, and uh, um, I think we've gone through this. There's the stages of shamatha as presented in the Mahamudra tradition are first with conceptuality, but of, often called like with support, or sometimes uh, the, the with support is divided into concrete support and non-concrete support, and then there's shamatha without concrete support. And so without concrete support is what he's calling, uh, sorry, without any support is what he's calling non-conceptuality. This seems to be analogous to the Theravon practice of attending to the emblem of consciousness. It's uh, not, not something uh, I've seen anyone else make a, that, that link. Uh, and the culmination of this training is the appearance of the sign of consciousness, presumably referring to the counterpart sign. So this is a big leap in my humble opinion that he's saying uh, um, these, these two things are comparable. But Mahamudra and Atiyoga also encourage the practice of quiescence in which the attention is focused on conceptualization, also called maintaining the mind in its natural state. This method, which is also said to lead to a realization of the essential characteristics of consciousness, appears to have a counterpart in the Pali Buddhist literature where it is called unfastened mindfulness. Ram. Wondering if he's speaking from experience. Yeah, I, I kept wondering that too, you know, and I related at an earlier class, talked about his uh, uh, focus upon practice. And, um, you know, it, 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 it seems to me that if he had actually experience of like the first absorption or even the proximate, that he would be speaking with more certainty in the subsequent sections of this reading in terms of their comparability. But that is my projection. And one does wonder if he is speaking from uh, experience. So think about that. What do you think, Ram? Well, I mean, he, he certainly seems familiar with, with the, the, the Dzogchen Mahamudra part, right? So Totally, yeah. So and and I imagine he's done you know a lot of vipassana as well, but I mean how far did he go? Yeah, how far has he made it yet? You know, has um, he actually has he actually seen a counter sign? You know. Well, he, he's saying that in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, they achieved the absorptions without right. experiencing the counterpart sign. Uh, but so the question is, has he has he accomplished full shamatha? Or not, right? And but but you know because in the in the vipassana he's saying that the Theravadan tradition the consciousness countersign is 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 similar to Ati Yoga or or Mahamudra, right? That's what I'm hearing. Am I, I, yeah, it, it seems to me he's basing it on the descriptions. Uh -huh. uh, okay, but you know there's sort of two parts to your question. One is has he accomplished the 
the, the Mahamudra or Ati Yoga version of the culmination of Shamatha on the one hand, and has he accomplished the Theravan version? Well, it sounds like to me from earlier earlier discussions that he sits for three and four hours at a time, yeah. with no you know no blinking, no moving, no. Well, blinking. we don't know that part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he did report that he had done uh, two three hour sessions before yeah. a certain uh, retreat talk that I listened to. Sounds to me like he's close anyway. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's you know he talks in many places about how how unusual it is though, and he talks a lot about how it would be great if we had people who actually had accomplished it, and and I've never seen you know and and we're not supposed to talk about our attainments, but I've you know so maybe he's just really careful, but I've never heard him say any give any little hint of like well this is what it's like. It's it's always he's using the description of uh, these other teachers and commenting on their description. But anyway, um, let's see this method, which is also said to the. I'm sorry, I went through that. There's this notion of unfashioned conscious uh, mindfulness in the Pali literature, which is sort of unusual because uh, uh, the Theravan literature in the Pali is generally focus on a very fastened version of mindfulness. And so there is this odd reference to unfashioned mindfulness um, in various places that uh, is not prevalent and is not sort of fleshed out, but is actually mentioned. And he, he references an article by Colette Cox, and in that I checked it out, and she references some some sutra references, which I didn't check out, but um, it's an interesting topic. Anyway, as noticed previously, according to Sangha and Sankapa, an immediate perception of the primal characteristics of consciousness also occurs upon achieving the first proximate meditative stabilization after the attention has been disengaged from the previous mental image used as one's uh, meditative object. And um, uh, the primal characteristics of consciousness. So he's he's saying that he's leading up to them having a similar experience as the Theravans. Then he says here, uh, he says here that yeah, the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist accounts of the cultivation of Shamatha commonly emphasized mindfulness and introspection. Uh, however, the Theravada tradition understands these terms in a different manner, according to Jnana Ponika uh, Tara, who is the author of a book called, um, uh, what is it, the Handbook of um, the Heart of Buddhist Meditation, sorry, which if you, if you haven't read, is great presentation of Theravada Buddhist meditation, uh, as well as having a wonderful little collection of sutras, snippets in it, um, the Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And he, here he's saying that their, their presentation of mindfulness and introspection are different. I don't know if anyone picked up on it. In the other article, he says they're the same. <laughs> 
Um, so according to Nyanaponika, terror mindfulness applies preeminently to the attitude and practice of bare attention, bare noting. This doesn't have to anything to do with bears, but means like naked or simple attention on a purely uh, receptive state of mind, in a purely. And the Pali equivalent of the term translated as introspection, namely sampajanya, is commonly translated from, from the Pali as clear comprehension. And we see this in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha says, in the refrain, the, the uh, bhikkhu practices ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. And that's the common refrain that goes throughout each of the different sections, of the many sections of that sutra that apply to different specific practices. And um, uh, and it comes into operation when any kind of action is required, including active, reflective thoughts on things observed. And the purpose of clear comprehension is to make all our activities purposeful, efficient, and concordant with reality. In both traditions, this mental factor is regarded as a factor of intelligence. And so um, we went. We actually went through a. Uh, his presentation of clear comprehension, I believe, in a different course years ago. Uh, but maybe someday it would be cool to look at it again because uh, I don't quite agree with Alan's uh, way that he presented it in this sort of limited way. Nyanaponika presents these four domains of clear comprehension that range from the very mundane of like when I move my hand to pick up a glass, like intending and knowing why I'm moving my hand and how I'm going to pick up the glass and so forth to um, like when you go into the kitchen to get something remembering what, what you were going there for instead of getting there and like wondering why am I here as we we, we do often uh, as well as the uh, clear comprehension of reality of like what's what's uh, helpful on the path and what's not helpful on the path is the usual way of describing reality in the earlier tradition. Tsongkhapa maintains the first proximate meditative stabilization, uh, provides a sufficient basis and samadhi for the further cultivation of insight into ultimate truth. So he presents this uh, bar as being the bar uh, basically throughout these two articles and his writings in general that he's, he claims that this is the uh, the agreed upon level of accomplishment that one needs to have of shamatha in order to effectively practice Vipassana in the Indo-Tibetan tradition. And uh, he's saying the nuances is that it's the proximate concentration, the first um part of the first absorption. So if you were to divide that first absorption into two different absorptions, it would be the first and not the second. And uh, just to give a little more depth on that, the way the absorptions are basically described is that they are the, the uh, cultivation of five uh, factors as follows. They're applied thought, And um, what is the term they use? Applied thought and sort of concentrated thought. And they're a pair. And then there's uh, mental bliss and physical bliss. 
of uh, um, sorry mental and physical joy and then mental phys and uh, um, well there's two levels of uh, well-being and there's a physical and mental version of both and then there's um, equanimity or um, a wholeness or concentratedness and as one goes through the jhanas uh, progressively in each one you let go of one of those factors starting with applied thought to go from the the first half so to speak of the first absorption to the second you let go of applied thought and so then you just have sorry it's called sustained thought not focused thought sustained thought so the in the in those levels of the absorption there's still some sort of discursive thought going on very subtle about exclusively about the object and then there's these experiences of well-being or bliss physical and mental and uh, one let, let's go of those one at a time to get to the higher absorption until finally in the last absorption one uh, the only factor remaining is equanimity or, or uh, one-pointedness And so um, he's saying that in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, one only needs to have accomplished that first of five absorption states instead of four, that first uh, half of the first absorption state. Whereas in the earlier tra tradition, in the, uh, in the recorded sayings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon, the Buddha doesn't distinguish, he just says the first absorption. There's references to the first absorption being required. Uh, the Pali Suttas indicate that the first stabilization alone is indispensable for the cultivation of super-mundane insight and the achievement of nirvana. They do not make the distinction between the, the proximate and basic stabilization. This distinction appears first in the commentaries to the suttas. Thus, when the suttas declare that the and suttas is the Pali term uh, for sutras, thus when the suttas declare that the first meditative stabilization is a necessary prerequisite for the cultivation of insight, this may be interpreted as referring to either the first proximate or the first basic stabilization. A Theravada tradition, however, maintains that the first basic stabilization is necessary due to the strength. Um, I think there's a word left out here, due to the strength of its five factors of stabilization, which are the ones I just went through, and its freedom from the five hindrances. And this is another topic of uh, interest in terms of the uh, cultivation of this practice and the relationship of uh, this to the four foundations of mindfulness is the overcoming of the five hindrances beginning with uh, desire for sense objects experience nevertheless since super mundane insight and union with uh, quiescence is capable of utterly eliminating the five hindrances whereas quiescence alone only subdues the five hindrances, insight completely eradicates them. It seems at least plausible that the first proximate stabilization could provide an adequate basis and samadhi for the development of such insight. So uh, he's eager as we are to lower the bar a little bit. Uh, but uh, that first proximate is still, you know, 
Um, there's the nine stages of shamatha, and then there's actual shamatha. And it's unclear, well, whether the, the, the actual shamatha, or i.e. the tenth stage of shamatha, is equivalent to the first proximate or not, but my bet that is that it is. <laughs> and so all you need to do is uh, perfect shamatha in order to then cultivate vipassana and experience the first stage of enlightenment on the path of seeing. Uh, let's see. In the Pali Canon, the Buddha explicitly states the four applications of mindfulness can bring about the realizations for which they were designed only if the meditators already abandoned the impurities and practices with a concentrated, unified mind. Now, um, in the... In the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, or Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, or Mahasatipatthana Sutra. There's two versions of them. My recollection is the Buddha says, one who is free from the ills of the world. And then that uh, is, I believe, what Alan is referring to when he says the Buddha specifies this. And he's saying that because the commentarial tradition understands that phrase free from the ills of the world to refer to um, having uh, suppressed the five hindrances but that's sort of uh, possibly open for debate or discussion to what level one has to have the five hindrances under control in order to practice the four foundations of mindfulness obviously we all know in the west and also in Trungpa Rinpoche's presentation, we don't talk, there's no discussion of overcoming the five hindrances before practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. So, sort of interesting difference. And he makes a, a, a big deal of this in the other article. Uh, moreover, it's noteworthy that the terms concentrated and unified mind, um, and he gives uh, some. Samahita and Ekagachita, as the uh, Pali terms correspond to the terms used to describe the final two of the nine attentional states leading to the stage of quiescence. And those are the uh, two of the five factors of uh, the proximate and first stabilization. And, and there's He's saying that those terms are used to describe stage eight and nine of the nine stages of shamatha. Um, the commentary to this discourse explains that the impurities refers to the five hindrances, and in, in the Buddha's words, so long as these five hindrances are not abandoned, one considers oneself as being. Um, he uses this. This, uh, this is this gets into the hindrances themselves. The Buddha says. As long as you're subject to these five hindrances, you're as if you're indebted, you're constantly under the burden of debt, you're sick, <laughs> uh, you're bound, you're imprisoned, and you're enslaved, you have no freedom, and you're lost. <laughs> That's a little encouragement to all of us to not be uh, fixated on the experience of the five hindrances. Thus, according to both Indo-Tibetan Pali traditions, the attainment of any Arya path, be it that of a Shravaka, Pratyeka, Buddha, Bodhisattva, is contingent upon unification 
of Shamatha and Vipassana, as Buddha Gosha's classic treatise, The Path of Purification, declares there's no supermundane insight without meditative stabilization. Quiescence alone can only temporarily inhibit the activation of mental afflictions, and insight alone lacks, lacks the necessary degree of attentional stability and clarity needed to eliminate the, inf the afflictions altogether, and so forth. Um, then he goes into this issue of momentary concentration. So there's all these... Uh, Tonight's readings is all about these different subtleties in the, in, these, in the practices and how they're viewed in different traditions. Um, skipping a sentence, he says, there's a recent trend among Theravada Buddhists to substitute momentary stabilization. And the term is uh, kantika, samadhi. I think that's it. It's hard, uh, hard to read this text. Come, um, for genuine meditative stabilization. And he's referring to um, the practice and presentation of meditation by the Burmese, um, what is it called, insight meditation tradition of which uh, Mahasi Sayadaw was one of the most famous and accomplished um, members and this huge movement in Burma that uh, rejuvenated the whole practice of Buddhism in, in Burma and uh, included the laity, laity in a way that had uh, not really been done before whereas usually uh, meditation in many uh, Asian countries is focused on the monastic community almost exclusively this tradition uh, focused on getting the non-monastic Buddhist community who otherwise practiced generosity, dana or dana, rather, to the uh, monastic community to get them to meditate. And the idea was that, well, you can, you can also practice the pitch in that tradition is that you can practice insight meditation without having achieved uh, sustained uh, shamatha without having to achieve the first proximate or a first basic stabilization, purely by virtue of the fact that you that every human being has momentary meditative concentration, and it's a mental factor. And uh, the idea is that in every mind moment, where we have a combination of a primary mind, such as a visual consciousness or a mental consciousness, accompanied by an array of mental factors that always includes the five omnipresent ones, which is why they're called omnipresent. And if it's an object-oriented consciousness, which generally it is, it has the five object-oriented ones, and then has a mix of uh, sort of what, what we might call emotional mental factors. And every mind moment comes replete with this assembly of mental factors, one of which is samadhi and one of which is prajna, um, along with uh, like in interest and contact and feeling and discrimination. Those skandhas are mental factors. And it's a momentary thing. And they were saying, well, since you have that experience of Samadhi on a momentary basis, that's a sufficient basis to practice Vipassana. And thus you have the birth of the 
current Vipassana or insight movement where beginners at meditation practice are taught, supposedly taught insight meditation uh, based on this notion of uh, the ability of all beings to, ex- to experience momentary meditative stabilization. And he's saying... Um, Momentary meditative, momentary stabilization is discussed in traditional Theravada literature and it is defined in the Paramatam, blah, 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 as concentration lasting only for a moment. For that too, when it occurs uninterruptedly on its object in a single mode and is not overcome by opposition, fixes the mind immovably as if in absorption. And he quotes the path of purification on this. When having entered upon those jhanas and and emerged from them, one comprehends with insight the consciousness associated with the jhanas as liable to destruction and fail then at the actual time of insight momentary unification of the mind arises through the penetration of the characteristics of the three marks and permanence and so on. And so by in the in the Theravadan tradition the use of the absorption states for uh, the way that they're used for insight is that after you leave the absorption state so when you've emerged from the jhana which is Pali for dhyana, one comprehends with insight the consciousness associated with the jhana, and one sees that it's liable to destruction and fail, that it's impermanent, it will eventually subside, and that it has imperfections. And that's the birth of insight. Um, uh, and that happens in a momentary basis, on the basis of, of concentration that's not in absorption, you know, this is a fine point. If you need uh, absorption in order to experience insight in a strong enough way to lead to to liberation or enlightenment, then does that insight happen while you're in absorption? No, it happens after you're in absorption. But there's a, 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 a meditative um, moment or instant of mind that has that quality of meditative absorption in it that carries over and is the basis for insight and this is this momentary concentration the key is that it happens after you've already achieved jhana or absorption state and so then he quotes this person Kamindra Tara a modern Theravadan Buddhist scholar points out Momentary concentration is here shown definitely and clearly to to emerge during the actual time of insight, specifically for a person who has already achieved meditative stabilization. Moreover, within the context of the seven purifications discussed at length in the path of purification, so the path of purification, the state, the path is presented in the scheme that's called the seven stages of purification, and the first one is purification of conduct, which is shila, uh, discipline. The second one is purification of mind, which is meditation, concentration, all the different types of meditation in the Theravadan world, and then the third one is purification of view, which is like most but not all of what we would call wisdom. 
and then there's another four which are different stages of the the further uh, culmination of wisdom overcoming doubt and uncertainty um purification of i can't remember the the other ones um but momentary concentration occurs only after the third purification namely purification of the view which comes after completion of the second one purification of mind which by definition is includes at least the attainment of the first meditative concentration that's according to buddha gosha momentary concentration is the prerogative solely of one who has accomplished meditative stabilization it cannot serve as a substitute for genuine stabilizations so basically we see that uh, alan disagrees with the whole modern vipassana movement which uh, hopefully we'll get to in the other article and this is his technical explanation of that on the other hand there's new yes sir just off the top of my head i looked in sayadaw's book just as you were talking now and and i found him quoting suttas you know like the buddha saying look there's a group of people who without tranquility can proceed into insight meditation and of course, I think it's just what Alan Wallace is just saying. This is almost no one. Right. But, it's in. It's in the next paragraph. I was like, wait, I remember this, and then I found it. And I'm like, well, you know, but and then again, Alan Wallace is teaching insight techniques to people. I mean, we're all learning insight techniques. So I don't know this whole thing. I don't know why it's getting me a little worked up. I'm like, it, it, it just like. But we're all learning these techniques and we all know it's going to be much harder without stabilization and no one has stabilization. I, it just feels yeah. like an argument in this tiny little glass or thimble. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is an odd... Uh, I'm sorry, I had to get that off my chest. Yeah, I agree with you to a certain extent. Um, that it, it's odd that he's so like so on a, like a rampage about this. Um because he really seems to be very heartfelt that people are getting led astray. And I'm like, do you think people shouldn't be learning about insight technique or, you know, because you're teaching it? Well, he teaches, you know, if you go through his books as we're doing, he teaches very little insight technique. You know, he'll talk about it. He'll, you know, we have these articles that are going to cover how it's done. Fair enough. Um, but... Like, if you go through his books, 90% of his material is shamatha. Now, he does, present, he does present the four foundations of mindfulness in a, in a few of his books and places. And for him, that's uh, Vipassana. So, you know, there, it's sort of like, why is he doing that? Uh, but he's really obsessed with shamatha. And he did this shamatha project thing at Shambhala Mountain Center. And he's built this retreat center now in uh, Crestone, Colorado. And the sole purpose is to put people into long-term, meaning like years, retreat on shamatha. And to actually help people actually achieve shamatha. So, uh, but there... Yeah, you know, sort of what you're uh, getting at, or, or what you raise at least is getting at, is that in the Mahamudranati tradition, there is um, more leniency towards introducing insight early on than he's letting on to. Yeah, 
necessarily. And so one could say, well, that's just like what the Theravon, what the Insight Movement is doing. Um, you know, I think his response would be is that um, in the Mahamudranati tradition, uh, shamatha is the is is emphasized like hugely, and vipassana is um, more of a given as sort of like a subsidiary practice. I don't know, um, and, and I think he feels that people in the in the what he calls the modern vipassana movement. In the other article, I think he uses that acronym MVA or MVM are uh, being to somewhat to somewhat not like you know it's a little bit heavy-handed to say led astray, but like not skillfully trained in that they're taught from day one to look for the three marks of existence in their meditative experience to some extent. And, and versions of the Theravon system that are given today vary. But, uh, Isn't that what the Buddha did teach that, though, in some versions, didn't he? Well, he, as Eric is saying, the Buddha said there is this path of insight without, without shamatha. Uh, these are they're two viable paths, and some people do insight without shamatha, and they get this this funny name called their dry insight workers because they don't have the moisture from the the uh, absorption experience. Um, but as Alan is pointing out here, it's very rare. It was you know in the, in the time of the Buddha, we see a lot of it in the sutras because he's meeting people. Um, you know, for various reasons in the sutras, there's a number of people that he meets who haven't practiced before, and he, or some of them who have you know some practice, but he very quickly leads them into um, the simultaneous experience of shamatha and vipassana. Um, I guess what I was asking also is that I thought that in some of the the original presentations, I don't know whether this is where it's already branched off, but that in the presentations of the four foundations, that they do actually look at the marks. That is the point of the method of the practice. Well, what what Alan is saying is that in the four foundations of mindfulness, it's assumed that you've already overcome the five hindrances. Okay, okay. so the question is just what's the prerequisite to do the four foundations? And, and he, he thinks there's a bigger prerequisite than we do, typically. He's saying if you if you study the the, uh, the traditional literature, they are very clear saying that one has to have achieved some control over the five hindrances, which means by definition that one has achieved at least the first proximate meditative stage. Um, so. so essentially he's on a one-man project to rectify the entire errors of the presentation of this method of presentation <laughs> he's right. actually he's not the only guy he's closest Kamindra Tara so I had an interchange with him I mentioned years ago he taught it at uh, Garris and I got to spend some time with him and I emailed with him a little afterwards and he sent me this book that is not in print so he sent me a PDF of this book and I'm happy to share it with you guys of uh, Kamindra Tara the book is called something or other. 
the way of meditation or something like that. And this gentleman picks up on this and, and it actually reveals that there was a huge controversy between Sri Lankan Theravadans and Burmese Theravadans. Because the Sri Lanka, the Burmese Theravadans, there was a conference in Sri Lanka of Theravadans and the Burmese, a whole bunch of Burmese came from this new, uh, you know, Mahasi Sayadaw tradition and they presented this whole notion of what they had been practicing and, and teaching in uh, Burma. And it created a huge uproar in Sri Lanka, that in Sri Lanka, they're totally fixed on having to do the, the absorption state path and that momentary concentration comes after. You know, so this is by far a one-man show. It, there's actually a, a big controversy about this between Sri Lanka and Burma. And the other part of the thing that they objected to was that in the Burmese tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw and his uh, uh, teachers and the ones who come after, you know, before and after him, is that they focus primarily on the movement of the abdomen when one breathes. Whereas in the traditional Pali version, one focuses on the air touching the, the nostrils or the upper lip. And they, the Sri Lankans freaked out that he was focusing on the lower abdomen, which, which is a, that area is affiliated with the cultivation of Kundalini in the, in the yoga tradition. And uh, they said, you know, you're teaching, you know, Hindu yoga practices by focusing on that <laughs> area. Anyway, and he he sent me a whole bunch. There was like a whole bunch of letters between uh, this Kamindra person and some representatives of the Burmese tradition, where they're fighting with each other. It's very interesting if that's your sort of if that's your thing. But, uh, let's see. So, so such individuals who can you know achieve both at once, or can achieve insight without. Uh, having achieved already shamatha, are very rare. And he acknowledges that this is also mentioned in the, in the Tibetan ver tradition, but again, they're the rare simultaneous individuals in whom the signs of realization appear swiftly and simultaneously. As a result, he says, of their spiritual maturation from past lives. And, and this has got to be the explanation for in the, the lifetime of the Buddha, the way the Mahayana tradition explains like um, why all these people became enlightened so quickly with the Buddha is that the Buddha had, you know, as he expressed in the Jataka tales, which are his recounting of his prior rebirths before becoming the Buddha, um, that he had encountered like all of his current students that lived with him, you know, in 400 or so before the common era, he had encountered them all before in, in lifetimes before and had been cultivating them and working with them. And so they had been on the path for some time. And so then when they meet in that lifetime and the Buddha teaches the Dharma to them and they attain enlightenment like right away, that's not because they just happen to be superhuman beings, but they actually had prior uh, development and it's interesting to see uh, Karma Chakme acknowledging that it's the result of spiritual maturation from from past lives. 
where in the Tibetan tradition, that whole idea of past lives is uh, in the uh, uh, carryover and so forth of past of reincarnation is much more developed idea as we see in the the Tulku tradition. Uh, let's see the achievement of quiescence. Um, so he goes through this somewhat complicated description of this in the in the second paragraph in the middle. He says, "Moreover, there appear at least at first glance to be significant differences in the descriptions of the first stabilization with respect to the state of one's physical senses." So there's these difference. He he says there's these different descriptions of when one's in the first meditative stabilization. Can one, for example, walk? And he says the Buddha Gosha claims that uh, one is experiencing the uh, counterpart sign while one's doing walking meditation. And so therefore, you have to have some connection to your physical body. And that Buddha Gosha also says you uh, experience pain as well as bliss, bodily pain and bliss. So you have some sense experiences. And in other versions, there's a cutoff, total cutoff from the body of any sense experience. And, and so there are these differences in the way that these different stages are portrayed and, um, and whether, whether they're sense experience or not. Um, so on, on uh, the right hand, let's see, page 263, the end of that first paragraph. Uh, by habituating oneself to such practice, he says, sensory objects no longer appear to the mind, and one no longer senses the presence of one's physical body. The Theravon view, on the other hand, appears to accord with uh, certain discussions of quiescence in the Atta Yoga tradition. So he was quoting from the Mahamudra tradition, which presents this idea of absorption as being totally beyond uh, any sense experience, and the Mahati tradition being different. Actually, I'm sorry, he was quoting from the tradition of Asanga and Sankapa. So, let's see. <coughs> um, and, and then down at the bottom of this page 263, he says, however, according to the contemporary Atayogi teacher, Gyalcho Rimshe, who's this then and current uh, guru, and who, from whom he received all his uh, Dzogchen teachings and authorizations, the assertion that in the state of quiescence the sensory faculties are clear, uh, which which uh, was in uh, the implication above, was that by clear meaning that they didn't have any actual engagement or recognition. But he's saying that means that sensory objects do appear to the senses, but they're not apprehended. In contrast, um, he says the flawed cultivation of quiescence, which uh, was unclear. Anyway, on the following page, um, at the end of that paragraph, or in the middle of that first paragraph, this would seem to imply that the achievement of quiescence, specifically the first stabilization proximate, is understood differently by them. It becomes, the next paragraph, yet more complex when one takes into consideration the striking similarity between these various accounts of the experience of consciousness once once sorry, once the first proximate stabilization has been attained, and he goes through some uh, some of these 
differences. Uh, let's see. And he gets into this uh, experience of what he translates as what does he call it? The um, constituent of becoming. And uh, we've encountered this in other classes. It's this uh, Pali term, bhavanga. And uh, it's the sort of ground consciousness in the Theravadan tradition that Alan is uh, comparing, saying is, is uh, comparable to the substrate or Aliya Vijnana. Um, uh, level of experience in the Indo-Tibetan tradition. Um, however, in the Theravada tradition, they present the, this bhavanga, this ground consciousness, um, this constituent of becoming as a as a, uh, a temporary thing that happens in between moments of consciousness when we're engaged with an object. And so uh, we all know there's this notion of, uh, of awareness or cognition as being momentary on a very rapid basis with uh, mind moments being, you know, like 365ths of a finger snap sort of thing, very short. <clears throat> and that when one, <clears throat> excuse me, cognizes an object, uh, between that and the next mental moment of cognition, there's these very short gap periods, what we would call the gap, this is the gap, where one just goes back in, into this resting consciousness where there's no active recognition until uh, um, what's called impingement happens, where one has a stream of um, repeated experiences of the mind with the same object and when the mind encounters the same object first it's something like more than seven conti con uh, continuous contiguous mind moments then it generates um, apprehension of that object um, so they have this notion of there being like this ground state of consciousness that's like resting consciousness with no activity and no object, but it's not continuous. When the mind engages an object, it disappears. Whereas the Aliya Vijnana idea, as we know, is that the substrate Aliya Vijnana <coughs> is continuous at the same time that all the other uh, consciousnesses are operating. <coughs> So he says uh, at the very bottom of 264, similarly the Theravada tradition asserts that upon the achievement of the first proximate meditative stabilization there arises an experience of the constituent of becoming the bhavanga. This is characterized as the original or primal state of mind from which thoughts originate and this has been translated as luminous mind, and, and the, there's these famous little little snippets in the Buddhist sutras, suttas of the Pali tradition, where the Buddha talks about the mind as being luminous, 
and naturally pure, which, you know, as we know, becomes a major theme in the Mahayana and then the Vajrayana traditions, is the the natural purity of of mind and the natural luminous quality of mind. But in the Theravadan tradition, the Pali traditions, uh, they don't really make much of this whole thing. They consider it to be that luminous mind to be the sort of gap between uh, interactive mind. Um, let's see, the, uh, the achievement of the first proximate stabilization, there arises an experience of the constituent of becoming. So in that absorption state, one, one then experiences that bhavanga in a continuous manner without it disappearing the way it does in normal consciousness when you encounter an object. And uh, this is the original primal state of the mind from which thoughts originate. Sounds just like the Alavijnana is said to be process-free in contrast to the active mind. This natural state of mind is further said to be free not only from all impurities but also from all sense impressions that cause impurities since it shines in its own radiance, Thus, which is a reference to the way the Buddha talks about the, this mind as being luminous light mind, uh, which is obscured only due to external influence. Thus, it seems that when one is experiencing this, Bhavanga, constituent of becoming, without the presence of the counterpart sign, the mind is totally withdrawn from the physical senses, which is sort of his conclusion about the difference between the, the styles of obtainment, of absorption, if you're following along here, that in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, they obtain absorption without the counterpart sign. And... Um, there's a withdrawal from the senses, whereas in the Theravadan tradition, one experiences the bhavanga with or through the counterpart sign, and there still is sense contact. All these slight differences in presentation, which is a little bit odd. You would think there would be more uniformity in, uh, in people's experience of the development of these concentration states. But maybe they're, you know, they're, they say they seem to be talking about different avenues, which is ultimately the sort of conclusion is that there, there seem to be these different approaches to the culmination of shamatha and vipassana that lead to enlightenment. And in fact, at the, uh, in the middle of the next paragraph, to emphasize this point, he says, on the conch, uh, let's see, I've seen no evidence that the Theravadan tradition equates these two experiences. What, what is he talking about? Let's see. Um, well, it's the... Uh, the uh, attainment of absorption with or without the counterpart sign, these two experiences. On the contrary, in the context of meditative stabilization, but a gosha, the Theravadan, refers to the experience of the bhavanga, constituent of becoming merely as a failure to maintain the counterpart sign. Is that you, um, you slip into the bhavanga if you lose the counterpart sign. And it does not appear to attach any particular value or, or significance to the experience of consciousness. 
where whereas we know from the readings of this week and other weeks that the uh, experience of the substrate consciousness is a huge experience in the Indo-Tibetan tradition where um, it's a sign of accomplishment and not like a sign of failure that moment rests in the true nature of mind, the Ali of Vijnana, as a as a major accomplishment towards breaking through the Ali of Vijnana and experiencing enlightenment. And to jump to the conclusion On page 266, towards the bottom <coughs> of 266, he says, it's like the second to last sentence, um, taking all the above points into account, there seem to be sufficient similarities in the accounts of Asanga, Buddha and Karma Chakme to conclude that their discussions of quiescence or absorption or shamatha are indeed referring to the same state or at least very similar meditative states you know which is obviously the goal is to reconcile all the different versions and views all are agreed that quiescence is an indispensable prerequisite to the cultivation of insight which alone is the power to liberate the mind then he talks a little bit about these cool practices of magic you might call it in addition to serving as base of insight, these the first stabilization sufficient basis for developing a wide array of paranormal activities, abilities, sorry. Um, in the Theravadan, sorry, Tibetan tradition, they're chiefly cultivated by unique means to the Vaj, means unique to the Vajrayana. In the Theravadan, however, the fourth absorption meditative stabilization is cited as the basis for developing the paranormal abilities. And the Theravon tradition closely associates the acquisition of the ac, uh, sorry, the counterpart signs with the form realm and the plane of meditative equipose. Um, Buddha Gosha explains in detail how the mind is exercised in the use of the counterpart signs in order to develop the paranormal abilities. Take for take one example: if one wishes to move unimpededly through solid objects. One enters into the fourth meditative stabilization focused on the counterpart sign of the space, casino or emblem. Then upon emerging from that meditative equipose, one focuses the attention on a solid object such as a wall and resolves let there be space instead of a wall. And it becomes space and so can one can move through it freely. <laughs> Little side benefits of achieving the. the I read this story. Something in I encountered something in the last week. I don't remember where. There was talking about. I guess uh, that Shariputra and someone else, a monk, were traveling from somewhere to somewhere. But it was like from the monk's point of view, Shariputra sort of cheated because he he they were crossing a river and and you know he was practicing this something that, you know, basically made it earth instead of river. Is that the same as this, basically? Yes, totally. Yeah, there's a lot of these references in the in the Pali suttas where the, the Arhats, as well as the Buddha, does these sort of things. Yeah. Dipama biography. Yeah, D Dipama, yeah. 
she she uh, it said she did all four absorptions and did the magic too. Yeah. Uh, walked through walls, had other emanations, uh, taught in multiple places at the same time. And this is a book that has Jack Cornfield doing the uh, the preface. So oh yeah, yeah, it's a totally reputable, widely reputable, and current like saint uh, Mahasiddha. She's she is basically it's really fascinating. What is it? Is it just called the the life of Deepama? Maybe you can circulate the title to us later. It's it's very cool. Yeah, I, I I can do that. I got I have it on my shelf somewhere. Thanks, thanks, Rob. Um, uh, then he presents a different version below. Again, Lamrimpa, the Tibetan, claims that the signs of any of the ten emblems can be made to transform into the actual entities that they represent. Um, sorry, I left something out. Uh, basically, by um, sorry, I think it was somewhere else. That basically, by meditation on emptiness, one gains the same ability to transform things. And then on page 268, the late Tibetan Buddhist scholar Geshe Gendun Lodro gives another explanation for the paranormal ability to move through solid objects. So there's different ways to do it. Uh, he claims that the cultivation of samadhi and the accomplishment of pliancy, pliancy being that physical, mental uh, well-being that indicates the accomplishment of uh, either shamatha or vipassana, results in the formation of an unimpeded mental body. Uh, and this is the, the same body that appears after we die. And some people say uh, is what our dream body is, same as our dream body, pervading and equal in size to one's physical body, except much skinnier and younger, usually. Um, but not composed of matter. After achieving this mental body, he says one can move both one's mental body and one's physical body unimpededly through solid objects while the mind is in the state of samadhi. And uh, uh, we left out Milarepa. There's tons of this in the life of Milarepa as well, this sort of stuff. Um, while in the state of samadhi, as that a mental body together with this ability to move through walls can also be achieved through repeated conceptual uh, conceptual realization of emptiness even without the achievement of quiescence. So that's maybe a little bit more achievable for us. Shifting to the other article briefly, since I've taken so long. Uh, uh, the other article, I'm sorry, I, I forgot I wanted to like, I don't know if this was the first five pages were of interest to anybody, the first four pages, all this Western stuff. Uh, but basically, in my opinion, the good stuff starts on page five. According to Theravada Buddhism, the Buddha defined mindfulness as the faculty of remembering or recalling what was done and said in the past and its primary meaning recurs in later Abhidharma treatises. And um, 
So he goes through uh, the, the Theravada Buddhist version, Buddha Gosha's version of what the term mindfulness is, and then a Sangha's version of it in the next paragraph. He says, despite the minor differences and theories and practices among the various schools of Buddhism, there's strong consensus in their definitions of mindfulness. Now, am I mistaken, or is that directly different from what he said in the other article? Where he said, Nyanaponika presents very different version. I, uh, I'm not seeing any reaction one way or another. You guys ambivalent, huh? <laughs> now that that's when I got to the second article, and I was just like, you know what? I think I choose <laughs> suffering. It's much easier than this because this is like I'm like, wait a minute, didn't you say something else before? And I'm like. I don't know what he's talking about at a certain point. I was like, you just talk about everything. <laughs> it's a little think, bit like that. I think Sorry. he's saying the the mo I took it as he was saying that certain modern Theravadans were misreading Buddhagosha. So yes. here he's saying Buddhagosha's fine. Oh, but then so in you, the other you article, he's saying the modern people are misreading Buddhagosha and giving these not good mm. definitions of mindfulness. Not interesting. I didn't pick up. I, you're basically saying he's lumping Yonaponika in with the moderns. I didn't quite get that. That's interesting. Okay. Um, anyway, in the middle of this, he says, it appears that promoters of the modern Vipassana movement, MVM, <laughs> adapted this definition from Jiddu Krishnamurti's concept of choiceless awareness. And by this uh, definition, he means the one in the preceding one of, of uh, mindfulness as being non-judgmental, present-centered awareness in which whatever arises in attention to attention is accepted as it is. Do you guys know who uh, created that? Is famous for having uh, put that together, coined that? That's John Kabat-Zinn came up with that definition, basically. So anyway, back to choiceless awareness, insisting that this is the only way to know the true nature of reality, defined as the observation of whatever is occurring at the present moment without a reaction, resistance, justification, or condemnation. Such awareness entails no remembrance, recollection, recognition, or naming. There's no reference to the past. It's free from ideas. Ideals, opinions, prejudice, likes, dislikes, motives. Uh, there's no polyterm corresponding to choiceless awareness, and there's no grounds for claiming this as a traditional Buddhist practice. Um, so he goes on at some length with this. Although it's at the bottom of the page, false to equate this with the Buddhist understanding of mindfulness. It's an even greater mistake to equate it with the Buddhist of Vipassana meditation, regardless of how commonly this is done. Um, okay, so without dwelling, we 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 all get that he has a beef between these different things, and um, there the the part beyond that is of interest, which is. Starts on page um, ten. Mindfulness practice in Buddhism enmeshed mindfulness enmeshed. Um, 
common ground between Buddhist concepts of mindfulness and those of modern psychology can be found in Tibetan Buddhist practices, variously known as shamatha, focused on the mind, settling the mind in its natural state, taking the mind as the path to liberation, which is the theme for this course, taking the mind as the path and taking appearances and awareness as the path. This process is simultaneously diagnostic, learning the nature of one's own mind and of consciousness itself and therapeutic, healing the mind until it settles into a natural state of sublime health and balance. When one attains shamatha, the ordinary mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, the Aliyah Vijnana, which is characterized by bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. And... Uh, He says on, on page 11, the first full paragraph, no, it's the second full paragraph in this practice, single-pointed mindfulness is to be stayed, sustained to the best of one's ability without distraction and grasping. The term grasping refers to any kind of labeling, identification, or emotional reactions of hope and fear and so on that commonly rise in response to mental appearances. One common type of grasping has been aptly called cognitive fusion a cool term by modern psychologists which occurs when one's very sense of identity fuses with one's thoughts which happens I think most of the time um, attention is then diverted away from the immediate occurrence of thoughts themselves in the space of the mind and toward the reference of the thoughts I thought this was a very helpful distinction to point out that there's two ways of viewing our thoughts one is to get lost in the referent of our thoughts what we're thinking about and the other is to view the mind as functioning like uh, an organ that has thoughts and we can pay attention to the thoughts or not or buy into them and believe them or not and so the key is when you're considering your thoughts is how you're looking at your thoughts do you look at your thoughts as if your thoughts are in front of you or behind you or to one side or the other or in the middle and that's your homework for next week is to look at your thoughts and find out when you're experiencing your thoughts where does does it appear to be in relation to you looking at them rob isn't cognitive fusion i i understood it to mean that thinking that you are your thoughts i think it's both you know he says here um one's identity fuses with thoughts identity attention yes so then attention because of that thinking that you are your thoughts thank you is then diverted away from the immediate occurrence of the thoughts themselves in the space of the mind and toward the reference of these thoughts we think we're the little announcer that's going on all the time we think, we're, we think the thoughts are driving the car right when actually they're backseat commentators right right and yeah. and 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 then and then like Cynthia pointed out last week, you know, like when we were talking about how um, uh, how B. Allen Wallace was talking about when we observe our own mind internally, the obser observation changes what we're looking at. Yeah, that's and cool. She brought up you know Schrodinger's cat, which is the experiment about the Heisenberg principle, which is in, in subatomic physics the same thing happens. You try to m measure a subatomic particle and by attempting to measure it you've actually changed its trajectory you've you forced a field to become a particle um 
Yeah, and Cynthia has Schrodinger's cat with her tonight. We saw it earlier. And the cognitive fusion is just like fusion in physics, is an explosion uh, created by the fusion of uh, entity and and, uh, cognitive process and creates an explosion greater than uh, fission. Or no, it's the other way around. This whole idea of like <laughs> us, uh, the actual practice changes us. It sort of it, uh, isn't that what's supposed to do? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, that's just further evidence of the, of the efficacy of what we're doing. Um, well, it's another way to describe it, but yes, it's it's definitely an interesting facet. It's a good way of pointing out that that's what's happened. And then uh, lastly, uh, for tonight at least, at the end of the next paragraph, um, or in the next paragraph, at the beginning, it's challenging, sometimes stressful to devote oneself to full-time solitary practice for many hours each day. We all know this, those of us that have tried. And we're accustomed to let our attention roam at will and occupy our minds with all kinds of things entertainments, and the the Buddha referred to these as the abode of the devil, Mara. And uh, to do this, when we do this practice, withdrawal symptoms can can be sometimes as fierce as those evoked by quitting addictive drugs and going cold turkey. (laughs) The habituated mind reacts to such discipline with great resistance. And uh, he quotes the Buddha, the wise one straightens the fluttering, unsteady mind, which is difficult to guard, harder, strange. This is a Fletcher. Now, what is a Fletcher? Did anyone look up what a Fletcher is? It's an arrow maker, right? That's what it seems to be from the context. But, I mean, had anyone ever heard that term before? Fletcher? I think think so. Yes. (laughs) That's great. I mean, I know it's in the movie, right? Fletch. Fletch? Isn't there a... It's the feathers at the end of an arrow. Okay, okay. Um, And then this great image. It's like a fish that's been taken out of its watery boat and thrown on the dry land. The mind flutters and trembles when it's removed from its abode. Such a great image. Like when the mind is not like able to do its normal thing. It just like flips about like a fish out of water. Anyway... We will add this, the remainder of this, to our growing list of uh, readings that we haven't gone to. I hope somebody's keeping track of, of those, because I am. Yes, we have the Padmasambhava paragraph. There. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, from the Taboo, right? That yeah. taboo article. Good. I, I couldn't find which article it was in, but I, I remember the Padmasambhava. It was the Padmasambhava. Like, where is that? I can't find it. Structured awareness. Yeah, so we got to come back to these things. So it's 9.20. It's time to yawn and go to sleep. <laughs> so thank you very much. Any final comments or suggestions or questions? Just with the uh, choiceless awareness, Krishnamurti, I actually agree with him. And I think people misunderstand Krishnamurti thinking, oh, that's being in the now. And and, and that's n- not what he's saying, because I've gone through a lot of Krishnamurti stuff. And it, I agree with him. And, and people, I think, misunderstand Krishnamurti. He's saying, take yourself out. 
you know, you're constantly grasping, measuring, sizing things up. Choiceless awareness means don't do that. Just aware, not be in the present, but. Well, that's an interesting uh, secondary thing, because I think Alan is saying that people are mistaking the Buddhist version. I I agree with them. Yeah, they are. And then they're confusing that. With the correct way of the Buddhist stuff, and I'm like, I, I never it's a put the two level, together. two level mistake. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I never listened to Christian Murdy stuff and then went to Shambhala and said this is the same. I was like, no, they're they're different. Mm, interesting. He doesn't mention it here, but in other places I've seen him have a similar complaint about the term presence. That uh, develop like meditative presence or presence meditation is presented as uh, like a style of um, like, you know, the modern Vipassana movement type of meditation and, uh, and, and, and equated with the way that it's used in Dzogchen and Mahamudra. And he says it's very different animals, very different things. The notion of presence, especially in the Dzogchen tradition. Anyway, I hope to see you uh, Sunday morning with uh, Galen Ferguson. <clears throat> and I hope you have a great week. And uh, see you next week. Let's do the closing chants. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. <clears throat> hey, so just uh, curious, uh, real quick, is all this stuff about like the Theravadan version of interest, like how they do absorption meditation, is that of curious curiosity to people? It's, Vaguely, it's hard to figure out what he's talking about, but it is interesting, like different minds, different approaches, and how to visualize. So it, it is helping with my meditation because I'm experimenting. You know, trying different ways. So, yeah, in, it's weird. <laughs> in, certain, in, in certain places, he he quotes the traditional descriptions of the appearance of the sign, which is sort of neat. I'll try to go through those too, of like it breaking out like a moon behind the clouds, and or like a piece of wool or cloth. It's very bizarre. Anyway, thank you. Take care. Be well.